Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, I love these crisp fall days, and I especially love Sundays when we can be together as a family and worship God together. I want to give you some reminders of some things that are coming up very soon. We're entering into a very busy season here at Netherwood Park. It's always busy here, but it's especially busy through the fall and winter months. So don't forget that this afternoon at 2 o'clock, we'll have our fifth Sunday singing. So the time when we come together, Brad will take us through help us learn some new songs, work on some unfamiliar songs, maybe help us get better at some very familiar songs. But anyway, help us to work together as we seek to be the best that we can be in lifting our praises to God. So again, that's today at 2 o'clock here in the auditorium. On Tuesday, that is Halloween, it's also our Trunk or Treat Day. Uh, We'll be here in the parking lot. We'll be inviting people and welcoming people from all over our community to come to meet us, to get candy. We'll marvel at a lot of the cool costumes that we'll see come through, and we'd love for everybody to be a part of that. So if you can be here and decorate your trunk and come in costume and hand out candy, that's great. If you can't do that, you can still just be here to meet people, to interact with others so that they can come to know us and we can come to know them. So again, that's Tuesday evening here in the parking lot. And then also in two weeks is our Fall Pack the Pulpit Sunday. On that Sunday, we try to literally pack this pulpit with food so that we can fill up our food boxes that we deliver to the community around us, replenish our pantry that is an ongoing project here at Netherwood Park. It's a very important Sunday. It's a very important time for us to bring together that food so that we can share that food with the community who is around us so they can come to know the love of Jesus Christ. So please plan on being here in two weeks. Plan on bringing bags and cases and boxes full of food so that we can pack this pulpit with food. Next Sunday, there will be volunteers at the back of the auditorium. They'll have bags that you can use to bring food in, and that bag will also have on it a list of the items that are needed for the pantry. So don't forget, pack the pantry in two weeks. I want to give you a Project 9K update. That's our Bible reading challenge here at Netherwood Park. We are seeing how many books of the Bible we can read in 2017. And to date, as a group, we have read 4,294 books of the Bible. So continue to read, continue to immerse yourself in God's Word. Those of you who are doing the sprint to the finish, who are reading through the New Testament right now, you are breathlessly moving your way through Mark. You're almost at the end of Mark. We've been reading through that, and it's remarkable how fast Mark moves. After we do our reading, we literally have to catch our breath. So please continue to read in your Bibles. And we have a Bible reading challenge because we want everybody to understand that we believe in the power of God's Word. We believe it's important that everybody is regularly reading their Bible, that that's a discipline that's a part of their life. We also want you to know that we're a church that believes very strongly in the power of prayer. We believe that prayer is powerful and effective. And we want you to know that we would love to pray for you. If you have something in your life that you know needs to be lifted up to the Father, we would love to lift that request up for you. If you would take one of the green cards that you'll find in front of you, on one side you'll see it says prayer requests. If you'd fill out your prayer request, if you'd drop it in one of our collection boxes, you can rest assured that we as a congregation will lift that request up to God. You can find two collection boxes at the back of the auditorium. You can find another one through these double doors. Every Sunday or Monday morning, 
I send out those requests. They go out to about 400 different people, people who are waiting to pray for you. So please take advantage of that. We also want you to know that this is a church that believes in the power of baptism. We are a baptizing church. We believe that it's in in baptism that we join together with Jesus Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. It's in baptism that we leave the old self behind and put on the new self. We're We're clothed with Christ. So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ believe that he is the savior of the world and you haven't been baptized, we really should have a conversation about that. And to have that conversation, if you just use this same card, this communication card, if you'd fill out your contact information, check the box about having a conversation with one of the ministers or elders about baptism, you can rest assured that we'll contact you right away and we'll start that conversation. So please take advantage of that. Also, we want you to know that we believe in the power of the church. We believe in the power of the church universal, and we also believe in the power of the church local. We believe that God gave us the church for a reason, that we belong together, that we were designed to live life together, that together we're much stronger than we could ever be apart. God works through his church, and we would love for you to work with us in this church. So if you've been attending Netherwood for a while and you haven't yet let us know that you want to be a part of this church, identified with this church family, won't you let us know about that? On that same green card, if you'd fill out your contact information and check the box about church membership, either I or one of the elders will contact you right away and we'll have that conversation about being a member of this church, so that we can welcome you into this fellowship so that we can work alongside each other and serve each other and serve God and serve our community. So won't you take advantage of that as well? Well, I want you to know that we are in the, not in the middle, we're a long ways from the middle. We're in the early stages of a sermon series from the book of Romans. And we're going to continue that extended series today. This is a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to the Christians in Rome. This would be a good time to grab your Bible or grab your phone and turn to Romans. We'll be in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And as we get ready to start, let's pray together. Father, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome challenges us. Father, it makes us uncomfortable. And today, Father, as Paul points his finger in an uncomfortable direction, I pray, Father, that we won't ignore that finger. Pray, Father, instead we'll open our eyes and open our minds and open our hearts to the truth of what Paul is speaking, the truth he's speaking to us. Father, help us to accept his words, to examine our lives, and Father, not just leave feeling like Paul has pointed a finger at us, but Father, leave knowing that we have been called to righteousness. And Father, we pray this through the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, Amen. So we're in Romans. Romans is this letter that Paul wrote where he forcefully and passionately explains why the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news for everyone, for everyone who believes that gospel. And Paul is someone who's speaking from experience. He speaks as only the rescued and the redeemed can speak. 
See, Paul is speaking because he has been rescued. He has been redeemed. And Paul is convinced that the gospel has the power to rescue and redeem everyone. Everyone who believes. That's why early on in his letter, Paul boldly and proudly and loudly declares in chapter 1 and verse 6 that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And if you've been here much at all, you know that every week we've been affirming that statement that Paul made. Every week we've been affirming Paul's declarations. We've been saying that we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my hope is that that affirmation is starting to be written on our hearts. Not just written on the pages of the Bible, but written on our hearts. So again this morning, I'm going to ask you from your hearts, won't you join me in affirming our belief in the saving power of the gospel? Just repeat after me, boldly and proudly and loudly. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God. For the salvation of everyone who believes. And all the church says, Amen. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, or if you listened to the podcast of last week's sermon, you'll remember that in the the text that we read last week, Paul uses a lot of they and them language. It's all throughout the second half of Romans chapter 1. Paul points specifically to they and them. He puts the focus on they and them. And they and them is clearly the idol-worshipping pagan culture that surrounds these Roman Christians. So Paul points his finger out at this godless culture. And Paul declares that God's wrath is being revealed against they. It's being revealed against them. It's being revealed because they have no excuse for their godlessness. They have no excuse for their wickedness. Because Paul says God's eternal power and his divine nature can be seen by them in God's creation that surrounds them. And I'm sure that Paul knew that this language about they and them and this focus on they and them would be very well received by these Roman Christians. Because Paul knows that it's easy and it's satisfying to point a judgmental finger at them. That's just human nature, isn't it? It makes us feel better about ourselves when the faults of them are the focus of attention. So as this letter is being read to the gathering of Christians, I can imagine that there are heads that are nodding. There may be uh, amens that were sounding in the congregation. In fact, we might have even heard a few preach it Paul's echoing throughout the air as Paul says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. Preach it, Paul. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Amen. God gave them over to their sinful desires, the sinful desires of their hearts. That's right, Paul. 
And since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. Preach it. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Amen. Preach it, Paul. Amen. Let them have it. It feels good to see Paul's finger pointed at them. So imagine how it felt when Paul abruptly changed his focus. And that finger that was pointed at them is now pointed at us. It's pointed at the Roman Christians. It's pointed at you and we and me. Imagine how that felt. And I imagine that any self-satisfied, any self-righteous feelings about they and them were quickly doused by what Paul has to say. It's like Paul takes a bucket of cold water and he throws it on the assembly. And the heads stop nodding. And the amens quit coming. And the preach at Paul's just fade into silence when Paul says this, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Not much they and them in that, is there? There's a lot of you and yourself. Paul's focus has shifted. And it would be really easy for us sitting here today at Netherwood Park in 2017, it would be really easy for us to sit in our comfort. It would be easy for us to nod our heads and say amen and say preach it, Paul. Because Paul has shifted the focus and the shift of the focus is now at those first century Christians in Rome. But if you're feeling comfortable this morning, it's time to get uncomfortable. Because I assure you, Paul is also talking to 21st century Christians here in Albuquerque. He's not just pointing his finger at those first century Romans, he's pointing his finger at me. And you. And us. We should feel that same discomfort. Any self-satisfied or self-righteous feelings that we had when he's talking about they and them, those should also be doused in us. Because Paul is telling us that whenever we judge they and them, we're actually judging ourselves. Paul's telling us that that kind of self-righteousness is always self-condemning. What's your reaction to that? 
Well, your first reaction may be, but I thought you told us, Walter, that the Bible says it's okay to judge the wicked actions of others as sinful. And you're right. I did tell you that, and I still believe that, and the Bible does say that. In fact, Paul just said this earlier in Romans. Paul says there's no excuse for sinful behavior, and he points out what those sinful behaviors are. It's okay. In fact, it's healthy. It's good to identify sin as sin. It's important for us to point at sin and say that behavior is wrong. It's sinful. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about passing judgment on others. And passing judgment on others isn't just saying that behavior is wrong. Instead, it's saying they are deserving of God's judgment. And I'm not. But we may say they are deserving of God's wrath and I'm not. Unlike those Roman Christians that Paul is writing to, I don't do the same things that that pagan culture around me does. We don't do the same things. Or do we? And this is where Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5, from the Sermon on the Mount, this is where Jesus' words destroy any self-satisfaction that I have. Jesus' words destroy my self-righteousness. You see, it's true. I haven't had sex with anybody else's wife. But I have looked at other women with lust. And Jesus says, that's committing adultery in my heart. And that is deserving of judgment. And it's also true, and I assure you, I haven't murdered anybody. But I have been very angry at many people. Even some people who are in this room this morning. And Jesus says that that anger is murder in my heart. And he says that's deserving of judgment. So to use Paul's words, when I, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things in my heart, what makes me think that I am deserving of escaping judgment? See, condemning others while excusing ourselves, pointing our fingers at other people's sin while ignoring our own sin, that's the thing that allows us to hang on to our self-righteousness. And it also causes us to hang on to our sins. And that places us under God's wrath just like them. Jesus illustrated the same point in his famous story about a father and his two sons. When we talk about this story, we usually focus on the first son, the prodigal son, as we call him. He's the younger brother. He's the one who disrespectfully took an early inheritance. He's the one who left home and blew through all of that money on wine, women, and song. The younger brother The younger brother is the pagans. He's the they and them that Paul's talking about in chapter 1. But there's another son in the story. There's the older brother. 
the brother who dutifully stays at home and follows all the rules and blows his top when his father welcomes back, not his brother, but as he calls him, welcomes back that son of yours. He blows his top when his father forgives and welcomes them. That older brother, he's the religious people from Romans chapter 2 that we're reading about. He hasn't been with the prostitutes. He hasn't been drinking with the boys. He hasn't been down in the mud with the pigs. But he's bitter. He's angry. He's judgmental. He's ungrateful. He's hateful. And he's passing judgment on that son of yours, on them. But he's doing the same things in his heart. And the point is, both brothers are lost. Both brothers are alienated from their father. And both brothers need their father's mercy and their father's forgiveness. Both brothers need the gospel. The point Paul's making is that religious people need the gospel too. Which is why Paul continues to point his finger when he says this in verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Now isn't that interesting? Paul's speaking to religious people. He's talking to Christians. And Paul doesn't say that God's kindness, tolerance, and patience leads them to repentance. He doesn't say that God's kindness, tolerance, and patience led you to repentance. He's not talking about the past. He's not pointing his finger out to them, and he's not pointing his finger back to the past. He's instead pointing to the religious people right now. And he's saying that obeying the gospel is not a one-time event. Obeying the gospel isn't just something that happens at baptism and then we're done obeying the gospel. No, we're called to continually respond to and obey the gospel. To truly follow Jesus, we must continually respond to and rely on the good news of Jesus Christ. And why is that? Well, it's because we continually need his forgiveness. We continually need his mercy. We have a continuing need for his ongoing gift of righteousness. There's never a moment when we are good enough. There's never a time when we're right enough. There's never a moment when we're complete enough to rely on our own strength, to rely on our own righteousness. And when we rely on anything or anyone other than Jesus to give us the righteousness that we have to have, we're refusing to accept the gospel. We're refusing to accept the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. We're refusing to acknowledge our complete dependence on God's mercy. And that's why Paul says that repentance isn't just for them. Repentance is also for us. 
Turning away from sin is an ongoing need for everyone. Verse 5, Paul said, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Repentance isn't just for them. And it isn't just for them because God's wrath and judgment isn't just for them. It's also for us. And Paul says God in his kindness and tolerance and patience waits for them. God's waiting for them to repent because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to have eternal life. But Paul's also saying that God in his kindness and tolerance and patience is waiting for us to repent because he doesn't want anyone to perish because he wants everyone to have eternal life. See, the gospel's for religious people too. Only the gospel can save them and only the gospel can save us. Which is why it's kind of surprising that Paul next turns his attention to our works. Paul says this in verse 6. He says, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good works seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Well, Paul obviously hasn't changed his mind in just a few verses After his passionate defense of the gospel and the necessity of faith and our complete dependence on God's grace, he isn't suddenly saying that our works, that what we do is what saves us. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying that because our works don't save us. But Paul is saying the important truth that our works do matter. He's saying our works, what we do is evidence. It's our evidence to ourselves and to others that what we have is saving faith, true faith. Though we have the kind of faith in God and the kind of faith in Jesus Christ and the kind of faith in the gospel that responds with good actions, that responds with right actions, that responds with good and right behaviors. Our works reveal whether or not we have the kind of faith that shows through our deeds that we love God with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our strength. The kind of faith that shows through our actions that we love our neighbors as ourselves. You see, this is a truth. If the works of our hands aren't transformed by the faith that we profess with our lips, then it's very fair to ask if that faith is real. If that faith that we, that faith that we profess is heartfelt. 
If our lips declare that Jesus is our Lord and our Master, but our hands are busy serving other masters, it's fair to question who is our real master. Now, works don't save us, but works matter. They reveal who we are, and they reveal whose we are. They reveal our hearts, and they reveal who owns our hearts. As James said, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Works don't save, but they matter. Which is why it's important that we continually respond to the gospel. And why it's also important that we continually test our faith in the gospel. Unfortunately, here in James chapter 2, Paul shows us how we can test our faith. And he says you can test your faith by examining your deeds, by examining your works and your actions. So I want to invite you to do that. Let's do that. Let's test our faith. Let's do that by examining our deeds. And here's test number one. You'll remember Paul said that saving faith persists in doing good. He says doing good isn't an occasional thing. He says doing good isn't a phase. Doing good isn't a project. Doing good isn't a checklist. Doing good doesn't just happen after hearing a sermon about how you should do good. No, he says people with saving faith persist in doing good. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to persist in doing good? With a lot of help from a thesaurus, I'll try to help us capture what persistent good works really looks like. It's continuing to do good. It's persevering in doing good. It's pursuing doing good. It's recurrent good. It's remaining in doing good. It's abiding in doing good. It's striving to do good. It's resolute and stubborn in doing good. It's going all the way in doing good. It's leaving no stone unturned in doing good. That's what it means to be persistent in doing good. So for test number one, I invite you to ask yourself this question. Am I persistent in doing good? Is that my life pattern, doing good? Test number two. If you'll remember, Paul says that saving faith seeks God's glory and God's honor and God's immortality. So I invite you to ask yourselves this question. Do I seek God's glory? Do I seek God's honor? Do I seek God's immortality in what I do? Or am I seeking my own glory, my own honor, my own immortality in what I do? Is what we do all about us or is it all about God? Do I seek to draw attention to myself or do I seek to draw attention to my God? 
Am I after praise for myself or am I after praise for my God? Am I striving to have my name glorified or am I striving to have God's name glorified? That's test number two. And test number three, I invite you to ask yourself this question. Is the work of my hands self-serving or is it other-serving? Is it all about me or is it all about my neighbor? Do I serve others to feel good about myself or do I serve, serve others to help them? Do I serve others to fill my needs or to fill their needs? Test number three is, am I self-serving or am I other-serving? Test number four, I invite you to ask yourself this. Do I reject the truth of the gospel by following evil? Do I treat the gospel like it's only for them, not really for me? Do I treat repentance like it's only for them and not really for me? Do I stubbornly hang on to my own self-righteousness? Do I excuse my sin while pointing my finger at others' sins? Do I point out their need for repentance while ignoring my need to repent? You see, saving faith persists in doing good. And it seeks God's glory and God's honor. And it's other-serving instead of self-serving. And it also accepts the truth that religious people need the gospel too. That's a tough test to take. It's an impossible test to always pass. So it leads us to the place where we should be thanking God for the saving power of the gospel. Because it's the saving power for religious people too. Now these are hard words. These are tough lessons from Paul, aren't they? I feel like Paul's been kind of beating me up. It's been hard and tough to allow Paul to not only point his finger at them, but to point his finger at me, to point his finger at us. I don't know how you're feeling right now as we go through this difficult part of Romans, but I want to share with you what I wrote in my journal about what we've been studying. I wrote this in my journal. I said, right now, I'm feeling a lot worse about myself. I'm feeling inadequate. I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling unworthy. But I'm also feeling much better about the gospel. Because the gospel is strong in my weakness. And the gospel gives me righteousness in my unrighteousness. So feeling bad about myself, I don't think that's a bad thing. Because I come away from these words of Paul, not with hope in myself, but with hope in the gospel. Not with faith in myself, but faith in the gospel. 
My faith will save me. Not my strength. Not my self-righteousness. My God will save me. Because he makes me righteous. So I don't want us to leave here down and depressed about Paul's hard lessons and tough words. That's not what Paul is trying to accomplish. That's not the purpose of his message. Now, Paul wants us to leave here with an understanding and appreciation that we can glory in the gospel. We can rejoice in the gospel. Because as Paul also tells us, that saving faith is rewarded faith. Rewarded by the God of the universe. Saving faith gives glory and honor Saving faith gives glory and honor to God, and God promises that he will reward that faith by giving us what we can't give ourselves. He will reward us with his glory, with his honor, with his peace. And Paul says that's God's reward for everyone who continues to obey the gospel in faith. Gospels for religious people, too. Let's pray. Father, we are listening to tough words that force us to examine ourselves as Paul points his finger at us. And Father, we leave that self-examination with no doubt that we are unworthy and we are unrighteous and that we are sinners. But Father, we praise you for not leaving us in that place, but for raising us up by the power of Jesus' blood where we're able to stand before you righteous with your righteousness, your glory, and your honor. Not because of what we have done, Father, but because of what you have done through Jesus Christ. And Father, help us to live like Paul lived. Live as the rescued and live as the redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, no wonder Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation for religious people too. Let's stand. Let's sing to our Lord and Master who has given us the gospel and who leads us in his righteousness.